0: Good morning, Redeemer Church. I'm Eric Zeller, one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be with you today. Let's turn in God's word to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, as we continue our series looking at the seven churches of Revelation. As we start, will you pray with me? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Revelation, this great book that we're able to study today. Thanks for my brothers and sisters uh, gathered in their homes all over Dubai and even beyond Dubai. Thank you that we are united in Christ and united in the opportunity to look at your truth today. We know that Jesus has something to say to us today, something to say to the church. So we pray that we would come with hearts ready to listen, with ears ready to hear, with uh, minds and souls and and, and, and whole selves that are ready to obey Christ. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, well imagine with me for a minute, imagine that you are a law-abiding citizen as you no doubt actually are, You keep the speed limit when you drive. You always wear your mask and gloves when you go out. You pay your taxes. But then one day, you're at home, you're asleep, it's the middle of the night, and you hear a knock on your door. Open up, it's the police. So you get your pajamas on, you go to the front door, you say, Officer, there's got to be some mistake. Why are you here? I, I haven't done anything. I'm a nice guy, but there's no mistake. The officer says, he says, I've got the judge right here. In fact, uh, we know that you're guilty. We know that you're in big trouble. In fact, we've got the executioner here with us as well. Now, hopefully that experience never happens to you. But that's how the Christians in Pergamum must have felt as they received this letter. Each of these letters is going to begin by introducing Jesus, the author of the letter, in a way that's related to what he's going to say in the letter. So look at chapter 2, verse 12. He's introduced here to the angel of the church at Pergamum, right? The words of him who has what? He has a sharp, two-edged sword. Now that's an intimidating start to a letter. This is not a little sword. The Greek word means this is a big, two-handed, brave heart sword. This one is two-sided. It's sharp. It's ready for cleaving asunder. This is a serious weapon. It's a picture of judgment. Chapter 1, verse 16, we hear about the same sword that's coming out of Jesus' mouth, signifying his power to pronounce judgment and then to execute that same judgment. And so here's Jesus, and he's coming to the church in this city as a warrior judge. But why? In the weeks to come, we're going to hear all about Thyatira, this immoral church, about Sardis, the dead church, about Laodicea, who's this disgusting, kind of lukewarm church. Jesus, why don't you bring your judgment to one of those churches? There's got to be some mistake here. You've got the wrong church in Pergamum because we're a nice church. We're a nice church, but as we're going to see, that's exactly the problem. That's the reason why Jesus has come to judge, is because Pergamum is the church that is sinfully nice. Sinfully nice. Now, that kind of sounds like a bad job interview, doesn't it? You say, uh, What's your greatest weakness? Well, I work too hard. I care too much. Are those really weaknesses? Now, because if someone says, hey, what's the biggest problem with your church? And what if I said, well, we're we're too nice. We're too gracious to people when they mess up. We're too patient with people as they're trying to change. That kind of sounds like a humble brag. Like, aren't we supposed to love others? Aren't we supposed to be kind? Aren't we supposed to do good? Being nice doesn't seem like a problem to me, but it does to Jesus. What Jesus is telling us in this text is that there's a kind of niceness that's sinful, a kind of niceness that invites the judgment of God. That's why he's coming to Pergamum with a sword. And so, lest we think this is you know, something special and unique for Pergamum, it's only for them. Notice what he says in verse 17. In verse 17, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, Jesus is saying, Hey, all Christians. You need to pay attention to this. I'm writing to Pergamum, but I'm talking to you because I want you to know. I want you to be aware of this error, and I want you to avoid it. So how do we avoid being a church that is sinfully nice? In our text, Jesus is going to give us a strategy for that, and we'll get to that. But first, let's get some context. Jesus says in verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell. See, they dwell in Pergamum. And by the way, we think about Pergamum. What's Pergamum? There's actually a Dubai connection in the name Pergamum, the Greek word pergos, from which we get Pergamum. The word means tower. The same word perg comes over into Arabic as the word burj. So this is the burj city, like Burj Khalifa, Burj Al Arab. It's the city of towers. But Jesus has another name for this city. It's kind of a nickname for this city. He calls it Satanville. Or Luciferopolis, if you prefer. He says it twice in verse 13. He says this is where Satan's throne is. This is where Satan dwells. Now Pergamum was this impressive-looking city. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, with massive buildings covering this tall cone-shaped hill. It must have looked something like the city of Minas Tirith and Lord of the Rings. But Pergamum wasn't just the political capital. It was also the religious capital of the region. They had huge temples in the city for all kinds of different Greco-Roman gods. At the very top of their mountain stood this massive shrine to the god Zeus. And this shrine had an altar. Just the altar where they sacrificed thousands of animals was bigger than a basketball court. Even more insidious, Pergamum was the center of the growing cult of emperor worship. The human ruler who ruled over the Roman Empire was an object of worship for them. In Pergamum, they had not one but two emperor temples. It had been the first place where they built a temple to a living emperor. And see, this was not just a temple they had, but it was the center of the life of the city, participation in the emperor cult, bringing your offerings, paying homage. It was woven into the fabric of society. If you were going to be a good citizen in Pergamum, It wasn't just about, you know, being positive towards Rome. You know, it's go Rome saying, I like Caesar. But being a good citizen of Pergamum was you have to declare that Caesar is Lord. You have to offer sacrifice in the name of Caesar. This is the satanic system that rules this city that makes it the very home of the evil one. Because Jesus says that where false religion is strong, our adversary is at home. This is his place. It's his home. He also has others. Because Pergamum is devil city, it's obviously a place where it's hard to be a Christian. It's, it's hard to live in Pergamum. It's hard to have that much external opposition. If you can't do the emperor cult scene, if you can't go have a drink after work, if you can't go to the feast on the right day, it's certainly going to cause social problems for you, certainly work problems. You're certainly going to get verbally Criticized, it might even get to a point of physical persecution. That's not hypothetical because, in at least one case, it's recorded here, it's led to martyrdom. But here's the good news the good news in this letter is that these Christians, these believers in the church, they're not giving in. They're not succumbing to the cultural pressure. Despite heavy opposition, they're clinging to the name of Jesus. And even when this faithful brother Antipas was killed for the gospel, they didn't deny the faith. They didn't didn't turn their backs on Christ. They held strong. They clung to the name of Christ. And Jesus says, I see that. I know that. Praise the Lord for this faithfulness. There's so much to like about this nice church. And it's so interesting that he starts here with with this commendation about what he knows, the the critique that you're sinfully nice. It actually seems pretty mild by way of comparison. It it seems trivial, but you can just expect that if if he'd started there, We'd started with the critique, they they might have said, hey, you've got to understand our context. You've got to understand our culture. You've got to understand this place where we're living. It's an evil place. And we're doing the best we can. This isn't like some cushy place like Antioch where everybody and their dog is a Christian. This is Beelzeberg. People are being killed for goodness' sake. Even so, says Jesus in verse 14, I have a few things against you. I said that in our passage, Jesus is going to give us a strategy to overcome sinful niceness. In the text, there's four parts to the strategy, and this is the first. Stop making excuses. Stop making excuses. Because in all of us, we have this impulse to minimize, to excuse, to say, I'm in a really hard situation. We're in the middle of a pandemic here. Don't you know that? I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm doing certain things. Well, there's a lot of good going on in my life. It's not nice of you to point out those areas where I'm in sin, but Jesus wants you to know that just because there's a lot that's going well in your church, it doesn't mean that there aren't serious problems in your church. And he says, stop making excuses. Don't don't use your hard situation or your faithfulness or your fruitfulness as cover for those other areas that aren't right. The first step that Jesus gives to us is to intentionally turn down that excuse valve, turn the knob down on the excusing, and once we do that, we're ready for the second step, which is recognize the problem. The second step is recognize the problem. The other day, I saw this soccer video online. I don't know why I was watching that. It was, you know, we're, have, we're in quarantine and we're on the YouTube, whatever. So, so there was a little football, if that's what you want to call it, was on. And in the video, there's this guy doing a penalty kick. And so it's just mono y the goalie and the guy kicking the ball. And so they're all ready to go, and he kicks the ball, and it and it's a, looks like a great shot. It's right in the corner, way out of reach, but the goalie does this huge dive. He gets his hands on the ball, and the ball gets knocked away, and the goalie is saved the day. So he starts celebrating. He's, he's made a great stop. The, you know, the kicker is in dismay, and they're all celebrating, but then something happens. The ball, where it got knocked forward, kind of lands on the ground a few feet in front of the goal, but then it's got some spin on it. It's got some backspin. And so it starts slowly to roll and it just kind of slowly rolls back across the goal line. Even as they're all celebrating, here comes the ball and it's a sneaky goal just across the line. And see, Satan is all about those kind of sneaky goals. He's all about, you know, us doing everything we can to succeed, but then, the, but then failure coming just around our backs. And see, Jesus says in 2.14, he says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. And then it says in verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So we're, we're holding some bad teaching here. We learn about Balaam way back in Numbers chapter 22. If we flip back there, Numbers 22 to 24, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness and they come to the plains of Moab. And so we've got Balak, who's the king of Moab. He's afraid. The Israelites are here and there's a lot of them and he doesn't know what to do. And so his solution is to hire Balaam, who's some kind of two-bit medicine man, witch doctor for hire. He wants him to come and curse Israel. He pays him to curse Israel. And so you know the story Uh, Balaam tries to go and curse them and the Lord stands against him and his donkey starts talking and the Lord takes control of the situation. The Lord doesn't allow Balaam to curse Israel and instead compels him to speak blessing on Israel. And so then after that, Balaam's role isn't entirely clear in Numbers, but as we go later in Numbers and then we get the later revelation later on in the Bible, it seems that what happens next is that After Balaam blesses Israel instead of cursing Israel, King Balak, his employer, is furious. And so Balaam has an idea. He said, hey, 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 I got an idea. It's okay. Let's do this other thing. His new strategy, it's a a sneaky strategy. It says in Revelation 2.14 that he taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people. In Greek, the word the stumbling block, it suggests the picture of trapping animals Like let's say you're trying to catch a squirrel or a rabbit or whatever little animal is running around and you make this little cage and you put a little piece of bacon in there as the bait and you have a little stick that holds it up and you grab the bait and the trap is sprung. You're caught, You're, you're in the box, you're in the trap. That's a stumbling block. And so Balaam says, hey, King, let's lay a trap. What if instead of cursing Israel, you had a big party for them? What if instead of you know, of going to war against them, we got them to come over to our side. The goal is to thwart their mission, right? The goal is to drive a wedge between them and their God. There's more than one way to do that. And so look at verse 14, Revelation 2.14. It says, here's the strategy. It says, he taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. See, in Canaanite religion, as in Roman religion, they had these ritual feasts. They would offer animal sacrifices. They would eat them together. This would be the big holidays, the feast days, the party days. And, and, you know, so this was part of the religion, was eating this food. And then for pagans, sexual immorality was also part of the religion. They had temple prostitutes at their worship sites. They believed that immoral acts with these prostitutes was an act of worship that would bring blessing. So he said, let's try those things. And Balak takes the advice. He sacrifices a bunch of animals. He fires up a bunch of grills. He makes this vast quantity of kebabs. And then he sends the Moabite women out there to entice the Israelites sexually. A little food, a little sex. And the strategy worked. It worked because here's the trap. It's not just about food. It's not just about sex. The trap is for God's people to adopt the practices of the pagan cult. And look what it says in Numbers 25.1. Talking about this in Numbers twenty-five, it says the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. It goes on in verse two. It says these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. See this terminology whore. It's either the double meaning throughout the Old Testament. The people are literally committing sexual immorality, which is a sin in its own right. But beyond that, they're spiritually committing an act of covenant unfaithfulness towards God. They are playing the whore in a spiritual sense. And see, what Balaam couldn't accomplish by cursing, he's accomplished by deception. The Israelites were enticed towards unfaithfulness. The result is this great plague in which which Yahweh judges the people, in which he strikes 24,000 of them dead. And so just like if you discover a new bug, they might name it after you, this strategy goes down in the heresy playbook, in the history of false teaching, as the Balaam method. The Balaam method, something they talked about in New Testament times, in addition to Revelation, 2 Peter, and Jude, they both also mention this heresy of Balaam. And the heresy, it doesn't start with teaching. It doesn't start by saying, I want to convert you to my different religion. Balaamism says that you can identify with one religion, but enjoy the sacraments of another. You can have a ladu in both hands. You can have your cake and eat it too. You can be a Christian and find acceptance in an anti-Christian world. You can follow the Bible and at the same time follow the culture's openness to different forms of sexuality or different expressions of the role of men and women. You can stay in the Christian community even as what you actually do, your habits, your manner of life is shaped much more by the media and by entertainment and and, and what we consume and the community that we want to be a part of, even more so than by the creator God and his commandments. Balaam says, hey, keep being what you are. That's okay. You want to be a Jew? That's fine. You want to be a Christian? Whatever. I'm not asking you to change. Just do my thing too. Do my thing too. It's a sneaky goal. This trap is alive and well in every generation because it plays on what our hearts want. Our hearts want acceptance, and we want food, and we want sex. And so Balaam offers people what they want anyway. It's all about just figure out what their sinful heart desires, apply a little cultural pressure from the outside in that direction, create an opportunity, and they're yours. They're yours. That's the Balaam method. And so then where do the Nicolaitans fit into this? Well, here's how they do I, I don't think it's that there were people in Pergamum who thought of themselves as, I'm a follower of Balaam. I don't think there was Balaam t-shirts for sale in Pergamum. But see, in 215, in 2.15, after talking about Balaam, there's this little word, also. Also, it's a little more clear in the original language. It's kind of the idea of likewise. It's saying the teaching of the Nicolaitans is like, it's of the same kind as the teaching of Balaam. That's why that teaching is not explained. We don't have more detail about the Nicolaitans. He's saying they're using the Balaam method. They're doing what Balaam did. So so people said, you know, they would have been out there saying, hey, I'm a Nicolaitan Christian. That's the new thing. That's the new trend. That's the, the, the fun thing to do right now. Everybody's watching our videos on YouTube or reading our scrolls or whatever they were doing. You know, the, the Zondervan of that day would have a new book out saying five views on evangelicals and idolatry. And they had a chapter called the Nicolaitan view. Here's the, the trendy new way to integrate emperor worship along with Christianity. And Jesus says, okay, the Nicolaitans, they're new. They're cool. They're trendy. But you know what? They're not new. They're not new. It's not a new thing. It's not an innovative thing that they're doing because Balaam was doing this fifteen hundred years before. And see, friends, I've got news for you. With this innovative idea that you're finding online, you're watching on YouTube, your favorite twenty-eight-year-old Instagram influencer is putting in her Instagram stories. These often are doctrinal errors that the church studied according to Scripture and named and corrected tens and hundreds and thousands of years ago. It's just the latest version of Balaamism. And so now notice, though, notice the basis for Jesus' criticism. Jesus doesn't say, all of you are doing this. He doesn't say, you personally are holding these teachings. What he says is, you have some who hold these teachings. You have some. See that in verse 14? And in verse 14, in verse 15, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, of the Nicolaitans. So it's not, first of all, about the church generally holding these teachings, about the church as a whole believing or or teaching things that are wrong, the critique that Jesus offers is that they allow people who hold these teachings to continue among them as part of the church. In other words, the issue is that they're sinfully nice. They're too tolerant of these teachings. That's the issue. Because remember, Paul had told the church, Paul told the church in, in 2 Timothy to use God's word to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. But these Christians have let the culture tell them, well, those those categories are out of bounds. Those things aren't nice. And Jesus says, recognize the problem here. People in your church are seeing this message. They're hearing this message. It's starting to sink in. Maybe they're not immediately leaving the church, but they're losing their reason for staying. They're saying, maybe we're a little bit too uptight here. Maybe we're bringing this persecution on ourselves. Maybe if we got with the program on science or on gender issues, they would like us. Let's all just relax and be a little nicer. And people in the church are saying accommodation is the best po- policy. We don't, we don't want to have a fight here. Let's, let's just have a little compromise. We can live to preach another day. We can coexist with these people. We can coexist with this emperor worship if we just relax a little bit. When your only options are seduction or persecution, seduction starts to look pretty good. But see, Balaam's goal isn't just to buy you a nice dinner. It's for your lifestyle to be ruled by his God. And in a world that has an infinite number of tiny little gods, all with their expensive marketing campaigns, a culture of niceness means the kind of confrontation that needs to be taking place in the church to bring wandering souls back from error is considered to be out of bounds. And Jesus says that a culture of niceness then is an incubator of apostasy. So do you recognize the problem? We also had Nicolaitans in Ephesus, remember? We heard about them back with that church in chapter 2, verse 6, talking to the Ephesian church. Jesus said, yet this you have, this is the good thing in Ephesus, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. See, the Ephesians had other problems, but they didn't have this one because they hated what Jesus hated. But the church of Pergamon, they were nice to what Jesus hated. That's sinful niceness. We need to recognize the deceptive problem of sinful niceness, of tolerating that which Jesus hates. And when we stop making excuses, and secondly, we recognize the problem, we should then thirdly be ready to take decisive action. Take decisive action because what does Jesus say in verse 16? He says, therefore repent. Therefore repent. Repent. The solution this whole letter has been building toward is two words long. Therefore, repent. Remember, the call to repentance is not directed, first of all, at those who are holding the false teaching themselves. Of course, they need to repent too. But Jesus is talking to the ones who tolerate those false teachers, the ones who are sinfully nice. We need to repent. And out of the seven letters to the churches, five of them have some form of this command. Once error has been identified, God's prescription To address that error is to repent. See, it's good to recognize a problem. It's good to be aware that, you know, something not okay is happening. But Jesus is saying that more than that is needed. Like, let's say I ask one of my children to wash the dishes after dinner one night. So I say, you know, please go wash the dishes. And then after some time, I walk back past the kitchen and I see a sink full of dirty dishes. And then I find the child reading somewhere and I say, hey, I have this against you. You didn't do the dishes. That's how we talk in my house. And he says, oh, oh I, I had a hard day. I was I was busy with school and, you know, there's a lot going on. And I say, oh, oh, okay, but, but the dishes are still there. And then maybe he says, oh, he, he says, okay, I, I realize that I was wrong here. I recognize that I should have done the dishes when you asked me to do the dishes. Pause. And then he continues reading. And I say, no, no, no. Like, I'm sorry, son. I'm sorry you had a hard day. I appreciate that you've recognized the error here. But I've still got a sink full of dishes that aren't going to do themselves. These dishes need to be done. Now it's time for you to actually do what your father is telling you to do. See, And, and so that repentance, if he's genuinely sorry, if he genuinely recognizes the problem, it's time for him to obey, to do what I've asked him to do. And so how do we repent What does it mean to repent? Well, first of all, we we could say it this way. We could uh, give three letters, say, A-C-T, we need to act in repentance. A-C-T, A, acknowledge. We need to acknowledge specific sin. Recognize the sin. I have committed this sin. Then C, we need to confess. Confess that sin before the Lord. It's one thing to say, okay, my bad. It's another thing to go before the Lord and say, when I heard the sermon today, I was convicted that I had committed the sin described. Lord, I have sinned against you. Father, forgive me for this sin. Confession is changing your orientation towards your sin. It's adopting God's perspective on what you've done. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's confession. And then A, C, and T. Turn away from the sin. Turn away from the sin. Decisively act in a way that, that turns away from that sin. This is the doing of the dishes in our story. It's taking decisive action to move in a different direction from that sin. So for the church in Pergamum, then repentance would mean them turning away, them decisively acting away from their sinful niceness. Certainly that doesn't mean them becoming hard, becoming unkind, becoming cruel and ungracious and unloving. Then they'd have something else to repent of. What it does mean is that they need to change their approach this Balaam sin that's sneaking into their church, niceness is not the way. They need to confront. They need to discipline. They need to guard the church. And friends, Jesus is calling you to repent of sinful niceness. That means to acknowledge the sin, to confess the sin, and then turn from that sin. So when you have relationships where you know a professing Christian is trying to have it both ways with the world, turning means decisively setting aside that sinful niceness and calling their attention back to God's word. But don't stop there because we need to go deeper. We need to dig out the root of this sin. Some of us are sinfully nice because we fear man. And turning from that sin means to purposely replace that fear of man with the fear of the Lord. Others of us are sinfully nice because we like to pit Scripture against Scripture As if God doesn't agree with himself, we use definitions of grace and of love and of patience that don't include critiquing people's behavior and calling them to obedience. Turning, for us, means letting the God who inspired this word, letting him define what love looks like, not the culture around us. Turning doesn't mean being sinfully mean. It means loving like Jesus does here in our passage. Some of us are sinfully nice because we listen to teachers who are sinfully nice. Friends, if anyone is offering you a solution to your sin that doesn't involve turning away from it, if they're telling you that's just the way you are, it's your personality type, calm down, let it happen, that person is a false teacher who's presenting a false gospel. Turning for you means avoiding such as these. Some of us are sinfully nice because we don't know any better. We don't know what's okay and what's not. We're not sure. Scripture is confusing to us. And turning from that sin means replacing that confusion with biblical truth, with the clarity of scripture. It means learning how to do exegesis of the key texts. It means digging into church history to learn what these old heresies are and why they keep showing up again and again and again. And the church turning for you might mean signing up for GTC, right? So you don't have to be a confused Christian. You should not be a confused Christian. Confusion is not good enough, especially on these issues where the culture departs from historic Christian teaching. You as a believer in 2020 are responsible to know what the word of God says on these issues. You are responsible to study the text. You are responsible to confront and to dismiss those who are opposing the word of God. Some of us are sinfully nice because we always want to point to extenuating circumstances. That person doesn't know any better. Look how hard their life is. Turning for us means accepting the clarity of our Savior's demand, even towards those who are being persecuted to the point of death. And Jesus knows that some of us are wavering at this point. Do I really need to repent? Is being nice really such a big deal? He says, why don't you let me decide what's a big deal? And I'm saying, repent. Because if not, verse 16, if you choose to ignore this, if you choose not to repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He was introduced as the one that has the sharp two-edged sword. Now he's saying, I'm prepared to use that sword. There are consequences for ignoring the words of the risen Lord. And when's this going to happen? When's this consequence going to come? Well, I think it's it's the idea that it's now and later. It's already and it's not yet. There's a sense in which he might come today. He might inter- interfere in our lives, and our ministry today, tomorrow, at any time to discipline those who are opposing him. But certainly there will be an ultimate reckoning with his second coming. We're going to hear more about that sword in chapter 19 of Revelation. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of it. So let's not have the kind of sinfully nice church that makes Jesus Christ our enemy. Let's repent. Let's take decisive action. Verse 17, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember, it's not just for Pergamum. He's talking to all churches, saying, listen up, obey. That's what Jesus says. He wants all churches to see his game plan for avoiding sinful niceness. So stop making excuses. Recognize the problem. Take decisive action. But fourthly and finally, strive for reward. Strive for reward. And here's the motivation Here's why we do this. Here's why it's worth it to live Christ's way, live the Bible's way, not the way that the culture wants us to live because here's why, verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So, so the opportunity that you have is to be that one who conquers, to be this overcomer who's mentioned throughout the letters to the churches. This is the one who recognizes the problem. And takes decisive action. The the overcomer, the conqueror, this is the one who turns away from sinful niceness. This is the one who consistently turns back to God's word to shape their thinking and their life. And to the one who keeps doing that, to the one who resists all the temptations to do otherwise, to the one who doesn't succumb to the devil's traps himself and isn't nice to those who do, Jesus promises two rewards. Two rewards are not rewards you get right now, today. No prosperity gospel here no material blessing on offer, but he's offering something later and something better. You conquer now, guess what you get later? Two things. Number one, hidden manna. What's that? Well, manna, of course, is the food that God provided for Israel in the wilderness. He's saying, like he's saying, if you say no now, if you deny the opportunity to feast at these idol banquets now, he's saying, I'll have a feast for you later, like you wouldn't believe. And he offers not only hidden mana, but white stone, a, a white rock. It's not a big rock. It's kind of a little pebble. It's kind of hard to understand, actually, exactly what that means in the text. They would use these for different purposes. They'd use them for voting. Black stone means guilty. White stone means innocent. They'd also sometimes give white stones as an award to a victor in a, in a race or an athletic contest. And that would be like their ticket to the celebration banquet. So maybe it's either of those really could work as the idea. And this new name, what's the new name? We might read that and think that, oh, it's, I personally get a new name. Uh, But 312, a little bit later on in these letters to the churches, 312 says, on this overcomer, look what the overcomer gets in 312, assuming the same overcomer. It says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. So God's name is going to be written on that person. That's the new name. It's the name of God written on you. Just like I give my children my name to bear someone's name suggests ownership, relationship, ongoing presence. And so you don't get this new name because you grew up in a Christian household or because you were a member of a church or because you talk about Jesus sometimes. Only the overcomer gets this name. Only those who believe in Jesus, who follow him as Lord, who obey his commands, only those people get to be with him. Only those people get his name for eternity. Friend, is that you? If not, if you're just a part of the scene, if you're willing to participate in whatever the world wants, but you haven't decisively turned to Jesus, today's the day. Turn to him. Take his name on yourself. That's the call for you. Because Jesus is saying, to the overcomer goes the reward. And that reward certainly includes forgiveness of sin, and it includes a declaration of innocence, and includes an invitation to Christ's kingdom and participation in the Messianic banquet, because even more than all these other things, the one who overcomes sinful niceness gets Christ himself. Christ himself because that the manna in the wilderness, not to mention the whining and dining at the table of worldly acceptance, it's just food that satisfies the stomach temporarily. Your fathers ate that bread, Jesus says in John 6, and then they died. Balaam ate that bread and then he died. The Nicolaitans ate that bread and then they died. So many today eat that tasty temporary bread and they die. But Jesus, the one who's speaking here, he's our bread of life. Whoever comes to him shall not hunger and whoever believes in him shall never thirst. We will fully enjoy this bread when he comes because when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Only fellowship with Jesus can fully satisfy those needs that we're deceived into trying to satisfy in other ways. But to the overcomer, we have the opportunity to spend an eternity eating from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, as it says in verse 7. Overcoming sinful niceness, not going along with the cultural norms or affirming those who do, that might hurt your name in this evil age. But the reward being offered to you is to be among those who bear the name of God for all eternity. And to the one who holds fast his name in this life, as the Pergamum church did, and who repents of sinful niceness as they needed to, that one for all eternity bears Jesus' name. May that be us, church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of the message of our risen Savior. Father, may we turn away from sinful niceness and to Jesus. May we love like he loves. May we exhort like he exhorts. May we cling to truth like he clung to truth and taught truth. May we be true disciples of Jesus as this text calls us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.